0: party. And on their list of things, one of the things right at the bottom that's bold says no parties at the house. How many movies have you seen that basically that's the plot line of the movie, right? The kids like throw a party when the parents are gone. It's crazy, right? It happens a lot, I guess. Happens in the movies at least. But I want you to imagine it happened at your house and you invited everybody and you had all this stuff going on. And then mom walks in, dad walks in. They come home earlier than expected. They come into their house and in their house, you have just made a total mess of the place. You're doing stuff that's not on the list. You didn't do the things that were on the list. And also, you got all these people there that don't belong there. You got all this stuff going on that doesn't belong there. What are your parents going to do to you at that point? Right? Whoa, no, maybe not. Hopefully not that. Right? you? All right, that's, that's a great answer, right? Uh, take your phone away. I don't know, like no dessert for the rest of your life. I don't know, whatever your parents do as a discipline. But it would be severe because you knew the right thing to do. You didn't do it. And you messed up their house in the process. Well, that's what happens when Jesus came along. Jesus came along to his house with his rules, and he found it a mess. He found it a complete mess. And I want us to turn to the passage that we're going to look at tonight that's all about that mess that was left in the house of the Lord and what Jesus did in response. So I want you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 2. That feeling that you might have, that feeling you might have when you get caught. That's the feeling that's going on with these people who get caught when Jesus comes along. In John chapter 2, verse 13, that's where we're going to start tonight. John 2 13, if you remember last time, Jesus was at a wedding. Jesus was at a wedding in the town of Cana, that city up in the north. It says in verse 13 that he took a little trip. His trip that he took, he took down south. It says he actually went up, but I'll explain that in a minute. Look at verse 13. This is John 2 13. Remember, Jesus has already shown his power. He turned water into wine by his own power, just by thinking it, just by willing it. He just did that in the passage. Now, in chapter 2, verse 13, this is what happens. Check it out. It says this. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. That's a festival. And this happens usually in March or April, right around the time that we celebrate Easter every year. It says Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was down south, but it was actually up because it was on a hill. So they walk all the way up. Imagine you're walking up this hill to Jerusalem. That's what they're doing. And it says, in the temple, he, that's Jesus, found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. And the money changers were sitting there. This is the moment when mom and dad walk through the door and they bust you. They find stuff going on at the house that doesn't belong at the house. This is the moment for these Jews. Because Jesus walks into the house and they're caught. But here's the problem. They don't recognize that Jesus is the authority. Jesus comes in. He sees these money changers. He see, and then you might think, well, what's the big deal? Right? It seems like maybe it's the Passover. They're selling sacrifices. Isn't that a good thing? Isn't that like, I don't know, um, giving bread and, and, and grape juice that we do at communion? Like what's the difference between giving you know, them instruments to worship and, and what we do today? Well, this was different because these prices that they were selling these animals for seemed to be super high. And another thing was they would take like Roman money and then they'd take Jewish money and it had to be like good Jewish money. So what they would do is basically exchange money. That's these money changers. And the problem is they wouldn't exchange it. Let's say, you know, one Roman dollar was worth one Jewish dollar, right? They never did it that way. They said, oh, you have one Roman dollar. I'll give you like 50 cents of Jewish dollars. So they would steal money from these people, but they'd steal money from them, not in a business transaction. They did it when they were coming to worship God. So Jesus comes along and says, this is really messed up. Look what he does in verse 15. It says, making a whip of cords, All right? Whip of cords, probably not like an Indiana Jones whip, you know, like a big long thing that goes like, right, that's probably not the whip. This seems to be a shorter whip, like maybe um, like a mop, right? That kind of sounds weird. Imagine Jesus waving a mop at people. It's like, you know, your angry grandma, like waving a mop at you, you know, obey your mom, right? well, no, that's not really what's happening. But he makes this cord, this whip of cords, and he drives people out of the temple. Look at what it says. It says, making a whip of cords, Jesus drove them all out of the temple, along with the sheep and oxen. So he didn't just get the people out. He got the people out, and he got these animals out of the temple. They didn't belong there as he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Imagine that. Someone walks into the temple. This thing's been going on for a long time. There's this money trading. There's this money. There's a uh, sacrifice selling, all this stuff. It's pretty long established tradition that they were doing. And Jesus just comes in, takes the money out of the people's cups, and just dumps it on the ground. Goes up to t- the table and flips it over. What would you think if you were watching that? You probably think, what is wrong with this dude? Like what, at least that's what I thought. This week when I was sitting, thinking of this text, I was thinking, this is really weird. Like Jesus seems super upset and he's flipping tables. What's going on? I think he explains it later. He says in verse 16, it says, he told those who sold the pigeons. So I guess he took greater offense to them or something. He talks to them. He says, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. It says, his disciples remembered that it was written, and this is from the book of Psalms. This is from Psalm chapter 69, verse nine. It says, zeal for your house will consume me. The disciples remembered a passage about Jesus. And like you'd expect, uh, the people who had the money and were working in the temple, they were like, "Uh, dude, what are you doing? Like, Who do you think you are to come in here and overturn these tables, overturn all these money changers? Look what it says in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Basically saying, what gives you the right to to do this? What gives you the right to come into our temple and come into our place, our selling, our animals, and and you can just drive everybody out? Who are you to do that? And John, the author of this gospel, should have us thinking, ding, 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 we know who he is. We should be thinking, oh, they ask, what sign do you do? What did we just study last week? When Jesus turned water into wine. Miraculously, that's what sign he did. They asked for another sign, though. They wanted to see a miracle. Jesus, they, they asked Jesus, oh, you should do a miracle to prove that you have the right to do this. And Jesus answered them. This is the sign that he gave them. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Right? That's interesting. Destroy the temple where they're seated. What are they supposed to do? Burn it down? Right? Destroy it? Take it down? Well... Look what it says. The Jews responded to that. They said, it's been 46 years that we spent building this temple and you are able to raise it up in three days? What is he talking about? Did Jesus ever tear down the temple? No, he didn't. And that's not actually not even what he's asking. He's not saying, I'm gonna tear it down. He says, you're gonna tear it down and I'm gonna raise it back up. What is he talking about? Look at verse 21. It says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore, when therefore, He was raised from the dead. His disciples remembered that he said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. If that wasn't enough, that's this crazy scene. And look what John adds in verses 23, 24, and 25. We're also gonna look at that tonight. It says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. Many people saw what he was doing, saw the signs, saw the whole temple thing, saw him get really mad at the establishment. They saw all this and they thought, oh, I wanna be on this guy's team. I like this guy. This guy's a revolutionary. This guy's a, a free thinker. This guy, oh, like he's different than everybody else. I want to follow him. Now look what it says. It says they followed him because of the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Right? That's a weird, complicated sentence. But what that means is the people, and literally the passage literally says, In the original language, the people believed in him, but Jesus didn't believe in the people. Jesus did not really believe. He didn't entrust himself to them. What does that mean? It means that he saw their hearts. He knew that their faith in him was just small. It was just weak. It wasn't really a faith that trusted in Jesus. It was just a faith that saw how crazy his signs were and they thought, oh, that's cool. I should follow him, All right? Maybe he'll feed me some food. Maybe he'll do another magic show. It was a weak faith and Jesus looked at their hearts and he said, it's not happening with you guys. Some people, obviously, we got people from the first chapter like Nathaniel, Peter, Andrew, those guys follow Jesus. But these people at the temple, at the Passover who saw what Jesus did, Jesus said, apparently they didn't really believe in him. And you might think, what's the connection between verses 23, 24, and 25, and then the whole going into the temple and throwing over tables. Well, I think that there's this one theme that's going on, that there's sin going on in these people's hearts, right? There's big sin going on in the temple, going on in these people's hearts, and even going on, as I said, in their hearts, in places that people couldn't even see. And Jesus saw right through it and saw the sin and corruption that was going on. Jesus really cares about sin, right? And when I say he cares about sin, that doesn't mean he likes it but he really cares when people sin because sin is dishonoring God. And that's ultimately why Jesus got so upset in this passage because they were dishonoring God. And I want you to imagine this, If Jesus, instead of coming to the temple, if he came to our church, what would he find? What would he find if he came to our church? What kind of obedience would he find? What kind of truth would he find? Would he find corrupt practices of the leaders? Would he find that? What kind of things would he find in the people's lives? What kind of attitudes would he find among the junior hires with their parents? What would Jesus find? Right? Think about it on a church level. Now think about it on an individual level. What would he find if he came to your life? Would it be like you guys getting a list from your parents and then going out of town and them coming back and seeing that you didn't follow the list? Or would it be like these guys who were doing corrupt, sinful things and Jesus came to your life? Imagine your life is this temple. What would he find? I think it's important for us to see that Jesus was passionate about people doing the right thing. Doing not just the right thing, but the thing that would please God. He was passionate about God's honor. We should be passionate too. That's the big idea today. If you can take anything away from tonight, it's that you need to be passionate. You need to be excited about pleasing God. Not just doing the right thing, but doing the thing that is most pleasing to Jesus himself. And the first thing I think you see here is that Jesus is upset when he sees sin. He's upset, he's angry, he's mad. Now think this one through, is Jesus sinful? in any way no right you've probably heard before we want to be more like jesus right maybe you think ah, i'd like to be like this jesus right i don't mind going to people's tables and throwing them that kind of seems fun right nah, maybe that's what it means to be christ-like well jesus had the authority to do what he did and he had the perfect knowledge of people's hearts to go in and create this judgment which obviously we don't have but we still need to have that same passion and here's what i want you to think through tonight When you see God being dishonored, when you see people disobeying God's word, when you see people making fun of God, when you see people thrashing Jesus's name in our world, what do you think? What do you think about that? How do you feel about that? I mean, think about how Jesus felt. When Jesus saw God's temple being filled with corrupt, sinful, bad, horrible practices, what did he say? He got really upset. He took it personally. Okay, that's what I want you to write down for point number one. I want you to take it personally when God is dishonored. Take it personally when God is dishonored. That might sound strong. That might sound harsh. But really, that was the emotion that Jesus had. You know, I rarely tell you to think about how you feel. That's not what we focus on most of the time. But I want you to focus on that, at least for point number one here. How do you feel when people are disobeying God? How do you feel, What does it like make you feel on the inside? Are you upset by it? Or is it kind of just like, ah, well, whatever. It doesn't really matter. How do you feel about it? Is it something that when you see in the world, when you see online, when you see people at your school, when you see people in your small group, when they're disobeying God, how does it make you feel? Is it something that you care about? Or is it something that's like, ah, just whatever? Jesus did not think it was a whatever thing at all, he took it personally says the disciples saw Jesus's attitude and actions and they said they remembered a verse from the Old Testament. The verse is this, Psalm 69, verse nine. I already mentioned it, but here's what it says. It says, for zeal, for your house has consumed me. Right? Zeal means passion, okay? It means passion, real, not, not a, always excitement, but like a serious, determined, I'm, I have to do the right thing, passionate, right? And, and even the idea of it consuming you. Imagine any emotion totally consuming you, right? Sometimes, Anger totally consumes people, right? Sometimes um, laziness totally consumes people. Sometimes plenty of emotions totally consume people, right? Zeal for God's house is what consumed David when he wrote Psalm 69. It says it consumed him. And it says, The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. What David is saying is, when people are making fun of God, when they're mocking God, guess what it feels like? It feels like they're making fun of me. I take it personally. That's really where I got the idea for this point of taking it personally. It's from this verse where David says, I take it personally when people make fun of God. All right? I just want to ask you that question. Do you take it personally? Does it hurt you? I want you to imagine that I turned the corner tonight and I, I saw some of you and you were with your friends from your small group. Um, I had overheard this conversation you're having. Imagine this, that your small group was talking about um, my wife, Alexandra, in some bad way. You're saying horrible things about her. You're saying things that, you know, horrible things that aren't true about her, just imagine. And then imagine I walk up to this conversation and hear you saying horrible things, you and your friends and the people next to you, horrible things about my wife. How do you think that would make me feel, right? Not what would I do, but how do you think I would feel about that, right? Probably feel a couple things. I'd probably be really sad, right? But I'd probably also be really angry, right? And that wouldn't be wrong, right? If I saw you hurting her or doing things that are wrong, I would feel angry. And that's okay. That's the right thing to do because I'm, you know, her husband. Just like you would feel bad if I was, you know, smacking your mom, right? If I was hitting her, right? You'd say, whoa, Pastor John, don't do that, right? That's really bad. Hopefully you'd be angry at me, right? If your friend from your small group was, you know, beating up your little brother, right? Well, you might be happy about that. But but imagine one of those situations that'd be like really bad that would make you super upset. You'd take it really personally, right? You'd say, I would rather then beat me up or say mean things about me then say things about this person because I love them. Right? That's ultimately what David says with God. He says, when people make fun of God, when they don't obey God's word, it's like they're making fun of me because I love God. There's another time in the book of Psalms, it talks about zeal. It talks about people really getting excited about following God. And I want you to turn to this passage. Turn to Psalm 119. Turn to Psalm 119. Turn there in your Bible, Psalm 119. I want you to look, first of all, at verse 139. Psalm 119, verse 139. It's at the end of this passage. It's a really long passage, but I want you to turn there and check this out. Look what it says. Psalm 119, verse 139. It's not on the screen, so I need you to see it in your Bibles. It gives us that same word, zeal. And what does zeal mean? It's that passion driven by the truth, right? It's that um, excitement, but not like happy excitement, a determination driven by the truth. Check it out. Here's what it says. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. He's talking to God. He says, I get really fired up because the people who are opposing me, my enemies, they just don't even listen to God's word. How does it make this guy feel? The psalmist, how does it make him feel? Ugh. I'm upset by that. Right? Oftentimes, we're not upset by it when people are disobeying God because we're doing the same things. Right? You're never going to feel upset at people if you're doing the same things. And if you are, it's just hypoc- hypocritical. Look at verse 52 in Psalm 119. Turn over. Look at verse 52. Check it out. once you to turn to that passage too. Psalm 119, verse 52. Should be left in your Bibles like a page. Might be on the same page. Psalm 119, 52. Look what it says. It says, When I think of your rules that are from of old, his old rules, I take comfort, O oh Lord. But, verse 53, hot indignation, that means anger, seizes me because of the wicked. Who do what? Who forsake your law. People who hear the Bible, who sit in sermons, and right afterwards, they toss it aside and they say, I don't care, I'm going to live however I want to. That makes the psalmist upset. That makes him mad. It gets him fired up because he takes it personally. Jesus took it personally when people were disobeying God. He hated it. He couldn't stand by it. So what does he do? Jesus does something that you and I don't have the authority to do, right? If you went into the temple and started overturning tables, right, you'd get arrested. And they say, you don't have the authority to do that, right? Jesus did. But I want you to take that same idea. What did Jesus do when he came into the temple? He drove people out, right? He drove these bad sins out of the temple. He says, I don't even want these sins taking place in this building. I want them to get out. He drove these people away. He drove the animals away. He drove the money changers away because he dumped their money on the ground, right? Now take that and go back to what we said before. Imagine Jesus comes to this church, comes to this ministry, comes to this space right now and looks at your heart and looks directly at what's going on in your life, right? What would he want to do, right? In some cases, when there's sin, I think he'd want to drive it out, right? And that's what we should want to do too. We should want to drive away all the sin, That's going on in our lives so i want you to write this down for point number two take radical steps to repent take radical steps right if the people of israel were going to really repent of what was going on if they're really going to turn from their sin what would they have to do they'd have to stop making money on this they'd have to stop changing the money the way they have they'd have to stop being corrupt they'd have to stop doing a lot of things that they're doing to take those radical steps to repent they would have to give up the money they were going to make They'd have to worship God sincerely. They'd have to do all of that. They would have to be very clear that they're gonna do things differently. Now, think about for you. What does it take for you to clear those corrupt things out of your heart? And even before that, think, what is the corrupt things that are going on in my life right now? What are the sinful practices? I think when this, we don't have much evidence. We don't really know how this started, where people were selling stuff in the temple like this. But I would assume it was maybe because it was a convenient thing. I'd assume that whatever was going on here was easy for them and it was an easy way for them to make money, right? Let's just say, I don't know. I'm just assuming that's how this started. And then it started, they did it one year and they said, wow, we made a lot of money doing this. Maybe I'll I'll do it again because I got away with it. Nobody really stopped me. And then they kept doing it and doing it and then that that was their pattern. It's very similar to how any sin starts in our life, right? We do it once, we don't really get caught. We kind of just do it and then we just do it again and again and again and again and again. And when nobody really catches us, we just keep doing it, and then it's our pattern. Jesus comes in and says, I will not stand for any of that. And I want you to think for yourself, and I want to think for myself, what are those long standing patterns of sin that just need to be done? Those radical steps to repent. Jesus said it like this in Matthew chapter 5. He says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Wow. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. He says, And if your right hand, Causes you to sin. Cut it off and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body goes to hell. What is he saying? He's saying whatever it is that's going to make you sin, just get rid of it. It's not worth it. Be radical if you have to. Take a big step. Speaking of hands and feet, it reminds me there, there's some people out there that are kind of strange that really want to be right and left handed. To be, uh, what is it? Ambide- ambidextrous, right? Is that how you say it? Ambidextrous. Right, is that right? It always sounds like amphibious to me. It's like they can be in water and out of water, right? Um <laughs> right? Right and left hands. And if you wanted to do that, let's say uh, raise your hand if you're right hand. Raise your right hand if you're right-handed, right? All right. Now put it down. Raise your hand, your left hand, if you're left-handed. Right? Okay, you got some people that are left-handed, right? You guys, I guess, are like more special than us, let alone. Um But the whole world is made for right-handed people. I've heard that. I've read that somewhere. There's like a, a video that's like the whole world's made for right-handed people. Anyway, um, if you were going to learn how to be right-handed, you left-handed people, and if you right-handed people were going to learn how to be left-handed, what would you have to do? You'd have to do everything with it. And I've heard people do this. They eat with it. They, um, they like, pick up every cup, every water bottle with their left hand. They, like, tie their hand behind their back and just do everything with their left hand. Like, I, there's some things I can't do. Like, I was just thinking, I can't, like... Um, I can't really take off a a water bottle with my left hand very well. I can do it with my right hand. I was testing it today and I can't really do it. Like I'd have to practice doing it. I can't put on my watch with just my left hand, right? Well, it's probably because it's on my left hand, but I I can't really do it, right? There's things I can't do without my right hand, Think about it. If you really had to change your whole life and go from right-handed to left-handed, you'd have to change immediately, That weirdness and that uncomfortable feeling of changing from right-handed to left-handed is kind of what God calls us to, When he calls us to turn from our sin, the problem is sin is natural for us. It's the thing we're just used to doing, And for us to repent, it's going to take radical steps. And what it might take is for us to, you know, quote unquote, tie our hand behind our back, make it unable for us to sin, to get rid of sin as far as we can and to try to just do everything differently. Those radical steps of repentance are hard to do, but it's what God calls us to do. Another passage for you to write down on point number two, it's Second uh, Corinthians 7, chapter 10, or chapter 7, verse 10 and 11, talks about what kind of repentance is that radical type of repentance. It says it's a, it's a repentance that starts on the inside, but it flows to the outside. It says, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death, right? Just like those people who believed in Jesus a little bit when he came, who heard him at the temple and they heard him preach and they heard him do all those crazy things and they believed in him a little bit, right? And then they they bailed out, That's that worldly grief that he's talking about. But verse 11 talks about godly grief. It says, foresee what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing to do the right thing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter right those are radical steps of repentance what is that for you think that through what would that be for you would it be changing your bad attitude would it be correcting your rebellious actions your rebellious attitudes towards your parents and your teachers and your small group leaders would it be changing your bad words saying i'm not going to say those anymore and in order to do that maybe i'm not going to listen to those bad words anymore either some of you might be bad friends that it's going to hurt if it's like, oh, I, I got to get rid of some friends that are leading me to do sinful things. I guess so, right? Because that's radical. I mean, that feels like maybe cutting off your hand. It feels hard, but sometimes that's what God calls us to do. For some of, of us, it's it's bad media, right? bad music, bad entertainers that we're following, bad channels that we're subscribed to on YouTube, things that we shouldn't just be taking in anymore. Right? That might be radical, right? but... That's what Jesus is calling us to. If you know something sinful in your life, you gotta, you gotta deal with it today, not tomorrow, today. That's what repentance means. That's what real Christians do. They deal with their sin today. Not only do you deal with your own sin, but you care about other people's sin too, right? And that's a hard thing to do because it's uncomfortable and you wanna make sure you know you're not being hypocritical, but you also have to care about your small group and if there's blatant sin going on in your small group, you got to say something, right? you got to talk to them. you got to be loving about it, but you got to correct them in gentleness, like Galatians 6 says. You can't let those sinful patterns that you say, I want to get rid of as a Christian, you can't just say, oh, well, the guys in my small group, they do it, but it doesn't really matter. I mean, it's, that's their life, not mine. I can't get involved, right? Jesus gets very involved in these people's sin. He says it can't happen anymore. Back in the passage in John chapter 2, Jesus says that he understands people, which is a weird thing, and it's going to set us up well for next week, but I want you to think what this means, what he's talking about. He says that he understands people, verse 23, this is John 2, 23, it says he understands people when they believed in him. It says they believed in him when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus did not believe in them. He did not believe in their believing. In other words, Jesus was skeptical. And Jesus wasn't skeptical because he didn't know. He was skeptical because he knew exactly where those people were at. And I want you to take that idea and take it into our discussion that we've been talking about tonight, right? If, first of all, if we've got to take sin seriously and be personally affected by it when people dishonor God, and also we want to repent ourselves, what's interesting is whether you do that or not, I just want you to know that Jesus knows. Jesus knows every heart motivation. He knows who's a real Christian and who's not. Jesus knows that. When he sees the crowds that he was dealing with, he knew that with them. And the same thing's true. He knows that of us right now. And it's great to want to repent. It's great to want to change. It's great to want to live for God. But just know this, if you're a faker, God knows that too. That's what this passage is saying. Jesus knew all the fakers. He didn't trust them. He didn't trust people just because they went to church. He didn't trust people just because they said the right things. He didn't trust people just because their parents were Christians. He did not trust people. For us, what are we supposed to do about that, though, right? Here's what I think we should do about it. Point number three, I want you to take time to check your motivations. Take time to check your motivations. In other words, take time to check what's going on inside of your heart. We've been talking about all these things that are important, things like repenting, things like identifying sin, things like cutting off sin when we see it. But the problem is, just as in Jesus's day, it can also be true now that maybe you're only gonna do that just so everybody sees your repentance, just so everybody sees you're with Jesus. That's what was happening in his day, which is so interesting that these two passages are next to each other. And I think this sets us up great for next week. Lewis is gonna preach from John chapter three about this guy named Nicodemus that it says Jesus totally understood because he knew people. Isn't it interesting that, Uh, that when Jesus was presenting himself to everybody, when he was showing himself to the world, when he's being introduced, people saw him and were learning about him. They heard his preaching. They're learning interesting things about him. They're seeing the things that he was doing. And when they did that, they were making an opinion of Jesus in their minds. This text says, while they needed to do that about Jesus, Jesus did not need to do that about them because Jesus already knew them. And that's the thing, Jesus knows you. He knows your heart. He knows what you think about him. He knows what you say behind his back in a sense because nothing's behind his back he knows all of that he knows our motivations and the problem is some people are fakers and that's really scary to say but some people are and i'm sure you've heard this before so i'm not saying anything you haven't heard before but you know there's a lot of fakers that go through youth groups who pretend to be christians who are not tonight i just want you to make sure that's not you because in a group this size i'm confident that there are fakers out there Problem is I don't have Jesus vision, right? That'd be really helpful, I guess. Or it'd be bad, I don't know. Um, But Jesus could see everybody and he understood everybody. He knew their hearts. Here's the thing, I can't do that. I can't, I can't read your hearts, I don't know. Your small group leader can't really do that. The only person that can read your heart other than God himself is you. And the Bible says you're not even that good at it. Uh, I'm not even that good at it. Here's what Jeremiah 17 verse nine says. Write that down, Jeremiah 17, nine. Here's what it says, the heart, who we are on the inside is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, who can understand it? You've seen a lot of um, things in the world about the pandemic. Imagine people who are desperately sick. Imagine, what does that look like? If a person was desperately sick, maybe on their deathbed, maybe really struggling, using a ventilator, something like that, desperately sick. It says that's where our hearts are. Our hearts are like that, who we are on the inside. They're sinful, they're corrupt. uh, We're so corrupt that we can't even understand how bad we are. We can't even understand what we're thinking. Sometimes we wanna do the right thing and then we do it for the wrong motives and then it's like, wow, what happened there? It's hard for us to even understand it. But verse 10 says this, after it talks about how deceitful our hearts are, it says, but the Lord, it says, I, the Lord, God starts talking, I, the Lord, search the hearts and test the mind to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Not only does God see everything, but God's also gonna judge everything. It says Jesus understood that. I want you to take that vision and, and, and turn it inwards to yourself tonight. Right, your motivations for doing the right thing. Another passage for you, Psalm 139, verse 23. This is the last passage tonight, but Psalm 139, verse 23 says, it's a prayer, that we're supposed to pray to God. We ought to pray to God. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. God already does, but this guy talks to God and he says, God, can you please check my heart, check my thoughts? Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. See if there's any sin inside my heart that I can't even see right now because I want to figure it out because that's how much I care about living for you. He says, and then lead me in the way everlasting. There's hope there, right? that when we ask God to show us our sin, guess what God is really good at doing? Showing us our sin, showing us our motivations. The reason why we do the things we do, not just the things we do on the surface, but the reason why from our hearts that we do things. You might've thought of that initial illustration about people trashing their house and thinking, well, I would never do that. Right? And I'm with you. I never did that. Right? My parents never gave me a list of things, and then um, I blew them off and threw some big party when all the, and the cops came. Right? I never would have done that. I would have been way too scared to get in trouble to do that when I was your age. Right? Never would have done that. But I did often get tasks and chores that I left undone. And the problem is when mom and dad came home, I was still in trouble because I didn't do the right thing. You might think, well, I'm not a person who trashes the house and throws a big party in God's house and does horrible things in God's house when he doesn't want me to, but I do leave things undone, and there's things that I haven't been doing that I should, and there's things I'm doing that I shouldn't, maybe smaller things. Those are still a big deal to God, and I want us to identify those and maybe take some time tonight after small groups when we get home or tomorrow morning when we're reading our Bibles, maybe take some time and think about that and pray about that and ask God to show us that and then ask him for help to do the right thing. Not just the right thing for the right thing's sake, but the right thing because we care so much about God's honor. We care about serving him and loving him. Jesus was passionate about honoring God. We should do the same thing. We should be passionate about honoring God too. Let's pray for that. We're gonna talk about that in smaller groups, but let's pray for that and ask God to help us do that. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for, in your word, giving us instructions about zeal and passion see that Jesus was passionate about making um, his people pure and holy. Um, I pray that we'd have that same zeal for our small group, that we'd want to make our small group more holy. We'd want to help each other and point out sin when we need to in a loving way, but point it out and make sure it gets taken care of and get got rid of. But I also pray that we would be better at looking to ourselves too. Jesus comes into this scene with, with the Jews and calls out all their sin i pray that we'd first call out our own sin and figure out what bad things are going on in our hearts that we don't even understand we take comfort in the fact that you know everything in our hearts you know all of our thoughts you know all of our motivations that can be a comfort to us but i also pray for the people that know that that is not a comfort to them that's conviction for them because they know tonight right now that they have been faking they've been pretending to follow you when the truth is they have never followed you at all pray that you'd help those people see that. Please show them that. And please help us be more holy and live for you. Please. We know you care about it so much. We pray that we'd care about it as much as you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.